So we're starting the 29th of Earths today, where Guru Nanak Dev Ji, in the last verse, started this dialogue with yogic masters who were so impressed by Guru Nanak Dev Ji that they felt that Guru Nanak Dev Ji should join the highest clan of yogis. But they were confused by Guru Nanak Dev Ji because he had all the, the knowledge and wisdom that even was superior to the yogis, but he didn't seem to have the external appearance of the yogis. And Guruji questions their appearance and says, actually, I carry the same symbols as you, but I don't do them in an external way. I actually change the way I think. I improve the way my mind is dressed rather than the way my body is dressed. So Guruji used the analogies of wearing the earrings of contentment and spreading meditation and awareness as the ash on my body. So Guru Nanak Dev Ji uses the same analogy. And what Guru is doing here is he's giving us, the listener, the reader, the qualities that we have to adopt, the characteristics that are needed by the student of the Guru, the student of enlightenment, using the analogy of yogis and, and their outer appearance and their characteristics. So the beginning of the 29th body, Guru says, Pugat Gyan Daya Pandaran Kat Kat Vajahe Nad. Pugat means food, Gyan means wisdom. Daya is compassion. Pandaran is the name of a cook. Kat Kat, within each and every heart, Vajahinad resounds the sound. So if we were to translate this line, we would say wisdom is food, compassion is the cook, and in each and every heart resounds the sound. So let's break this line up. Wisdom is the food. Food is what keeps us all alive. The reason we're alive is based on the food that we eat. The body needs only a few things to stay alive, which is food, air, water, and then some shelter. So food is a really important aspect of keeping the body alive and nourishing the body. And what happens with food is the food that you eat eventually gets transformed into your cells. Your very cells, your bones, your organs, your muscles are a direct result of the food that you've eaten. The food that you've eaten has been turned into these things. And just as people are fascinated by food, the smell of food, the taste of food, the sight of food, so Guruji is using the analogy that a student of the Guru is using the food of wisdom. The food of wisdom is what is exciting to the student. There is no other craving for the sick of the Guru. The only craving is the Gyan. Gyan is the food, the Guru's wisdom. So what happens when 
we eat food. When we eat food, all of our hunger disappears. All the hungers of the body disappear. And in the same way, when we consume the knowledge of the Guru, all of the hunger of the mind disappears. The mind becomes nourished when it listens and it consumes the wisdom of the Guru. And just as the body's hungers and pains disappear with food, the pain and the desires and the suffering of the mind disappears when we consume the wisdom of the Guru. But there is one difference between food of the body and food of the Guru's wisdom. The food of the body is to stay alive. The Guru's wisdom is to kill yourself. Now this might sound strange. Why would we want to kill ourselves? Here we're not talking about death of the body. Food is to keep the body alive. But the Guru's wisdom is to destroy your ego. To destroy your individuality. To destroy your self-identity. Your self-identity has been identified as the barrier to finding God. And we can say that the whole of Japji Sahib is an explanation of the first question that was asked of the Guru. How do I find this permanent truth? How do I destroy the falsehood that's stopping me from realizing God? That was the very first question that Guru Nanak Dev Ji was asked. And Guruji started by talking about hukam. But in reality, the rest of Japji Sahib is an explanation of how do I find the truth? Guru explained the truth in the Mool Mantar. And then the rest of the Japji Sahib is how do I find that? What do I need to do in order to obtain an experience of that Ikwankar? So this wisdom is allowing us to destroy the barrier between us and God. The barrier between us and God, between me and the Divine, is the idea of me. The very idea that there is an I is your barrier to finding and connecting with the Divine. When we learn to kill this I, when we learn to kill our self-identity, that's when we have learned how to truly live. Now there's a really interesting question here that we have to ask. Guru says wisdom is what we need. The Guru's Gyan, the wisdom of the Guru. The question we have to ask ourselves is how do we know what is the real Gyan? What is real wisdom? How do we know which wisdom to trust? Every religion claims to have the truth. Every religion has a description of the divine and a set of rules to follow, to find it, to follow it. So how do we know that the Guru is the authentic wisdom? How do we know that this is the final answer? How can we trust that this is the knowledge that will get us to God? 
And how does the spiritual seeker decide which is the right path to follow? Because all the religions claim that they have the answer. <clears throat> now Guru Nanak Dev Ji, when he traveled across the world, speaking to different people of different traditions, his message <coughs> was the same every time. He told everyone to follow the Guru. And even the Bhagats who lived before Guru Nanak Dev Ji also said to follow the Guru. So the question is, what were they talking about? What is the knowledge, what is the Guru that they are advising everyone to follow? Was Guru Nanak Dev Ji talking about himself? Was he saying, follow me, I am the Guru? Was he talking about, follow my path? the teachings that I have to give to the world? Was he saying, follow the things that I've written? Because remember, Guru Nanak Dev Ji, when he's traveling around the world telling people to follow the Guru, there isn't much that he's written down at that point. In fact, some people would say that he didn't write much of his Bani down at all. He just sang all of his Bani. And in fact, it was some of the later Gurus who actually compiled them and wrote them all down. So when Guru is saying, follow the Guru, what does he leave people with? If he goes somewhere and says, follow the Guru, and then he walks away and travels to a different part of the world, what has he left them with? What is the Gyan that they have that they can follow? And in order to answer this question, we need to understand what is the Guru? What does the Guru do? What is the Guru's job? The Guru only has one job. The Guru's job is to show you God. Any other faith, any other religion, any other spiritual tradition may talk about God and may require you to believe in God. But you can find the Guru when you find the way to realize and see God, to know God not just to believe in God, not just to understand God. God can be seen, God can be experienced, God can be felt, God can be heard. And this experience can be inside you and all around you. Without any middleman, without the need to worship some other temporary God, some other middleman between you and God. The Guru allows you to go straight to the source. The Guru's Gyan is the clarity that it gives you that you may understand and you may actually know what is God. The Guru's Gyan gives you that and it also gives you the way to find God, the way to know it. So how does the Guru do this? What is the answer that the Guru is giving us? What is this Gyan that the Guru has to reveal to the world? What Guru shows is the permanent nature of creation. The Guru is showing us that we can see creation all around us. But what the Guru is telling us is there is something behind that creation. 
and there is a way to see it, there's a way to know it. The Guru shows you how to see behind the mask of creation. We talk about nature, kudrat, reality, but that's all a mask. There is something behind it. The Guru shows you how to distinguish between what is permanent and what is temporary. What is permanent and what is impermanent. Everything that society tells us to focus on is impermanent. Everything. From your job, to your family, career, your lifestyle, your likes, your dislikes, even your beliefs, opinions, thoughts, everything is changeable. The Guru focuses on what the Guru calls such, always permanent. If we think back to the Mool Mantar, we think about Gur Prasad. With the Guru's gift, with the Guru's grace, Jap, you can know that which is Ad Sach, which has always been permanent, is permanent now and always will be permanent. That is what the Guru shows you. The Guru shows you a way of seeing the world where you can see what is permanent in the world, not what is temporary in the world. The Guru, in fact, has no interest in what is temporary in the world. Everything that's temporary, the Guru says, forget that, that's a distraction. The Guru is showing you what is permanent. And so this wisdom of the Guru isn't confined to one religion. The Sikhs don't own the Guru. The Guru is for the whole world. The Guru didn't just start with Guru Nanak Dev Ji. Because Guru Nanak Dev Ji tells everyone to follow the Guru. So the Guru is something permanent as well. In the beginning of Sukhmani Sahib, we sing Ad Gure Namhe Jugad Gure Namhe. There is the Guru that we bow down to that is from the beginning, since the beginning of creation. Ad Gure Namhe. So the Guru is also permanent and the Guru shows you what is permanent. So the Guru doesn't really care what religion you belong to. The Guru doesn't care what label you put on yourself or what clothes you wear on the outside. That's not what the Guru has to show you because all of those things are also temporary. Guru only has one question for you. And this is a question that you have to ask yourself. And the question is, do you want to know God? <coughs> do you want to see it? Do you want to feel it? Do you want to taste it? If you want to know God, you have to listen to the wisdom of the Guru. This is how the Guru is known. This is how we can understand what is the real truth in any religion, in any spiritual tradition. So the Guru's wisdom is something that we have to be consumed the Guru's wisdom is something that we as a student have to take within us. Remember the Guru has used the analogy of Bhagat Gyan. Eat the food of wisdom. So how do we consume wisdom? We know how we eat food, but how do we eat wisdom? What do we need to do? How do we consume this Gyan of the Guru? 
we can do it by engaging with the wisdom of the Guru. And there's lots of different ways that you can engage with the Guru. You can read what the Guru has to say. You can recite what the Guru is saying so that it gets ingrained and embedded into your memory. Another way to consume the Guru's knowledge is to consistently and constantly talk about it with other interested people. That's called Sangat. Doing vichar, having a constant dialogue about what the Guru is saying, constantly trying to understand from each other and learning from each other, what does the Guru really mean here? So there are many ways that we can consume this on a daily basis. Listen to the Hukumnama of the Guru in the morning and try and understand what is the Guru saying, talk to other people about it. So we can do it through Gurbani, through Paat, through Kirtan or through Vichar. But doing this daily is something that becomes part of the practice of a Sikh. You eat every day. No one forgets to have their meals. It's just something deeply ingrained within us. You wake up in the morning, whether you're hungry or not, you start to eat. Yet, we don't have the <coughs> same attitude towards the Guru's wisdom. In fact, we wait until we've done everything else and only when we've got a bit of spare time do we spend any time with the Guru's wisdom. And then we wonder why Sikhi isn't working. Then we wonder why the Guru's wisdom isn't really having the effect on us. Guru says, treat the Guru's wisdom as your food. You eat even if you don't want to eat. You eat just because other people are eating. You eat what is good for you and you eat what is bad for you, but you eat all the time. But we don't do that with the Guru. We have to consume the wisdom of the Guru. And remember what we're doing with eating all the time. Sometimes when we get bored, sometimes when we get lonely, just to satisfy ourselves we start eating. So it satisfies an unsatisfied mind. The Guru says, actually, if you read what the Guru is saying and you actually contemplate what the Guru is saying, it'll begin to start satisfying the urges of your mind. So Guru Nanak Dev Ji talks about this quite nicely in Ang 1031. Guru Ji says, The wisdom, the food of spiritual wisdom, is a supremely sweet juice, maha rasamita, jin chakya tin darshan dita. Whoever tastes this sweet juice of the Guru's wisdom, whoever tastes it, they see the Divine Presence. Tin darshan dita. Guruji is telling you this is what will happen if you consume the wisdom of the Guru. You will see the Divine. Darshan dek mile bairagi man mansa mar samata hai. Beholding the presence, seeing that divine, this unattached person meets that divine being and they kill their mind and they kill their desires and they merge easily into that divine that they've met. So this is what Guru is telling you will happen if you actually consume this wisdom. And the Guru is not saying that it's a bitter pill. Guru is saying, Maha Rasa Mita. It's such a sweet, 
tasty juice that you just keep wanting to have more and more and more of it. But what we've done is we've made the Guru so unapproachable, we've made the, the Guru something so distant that all we can do is, is worship it from afar. But the Guru doesn't want you to just worship it from afar. The Guru doesn't want your Ramals and your 10p coins that you put in front of the Guru to Mathatek. That's not what the Guru wants. The Guru is wisdom, so the Guru wants you to listen to that wisdom, to take that wisdom and to benefit your life with that wisdom. So to consume this wisdom means to take this wisdom inside you. See, when you look at food, you don't just look at it. You don't just smell it and then walk away from it. You have to taste it. You have to eat it. You have to know what is the experience of that, of that food. And that food then goes inside you and it just mingles and merges into your very body. That food becomes you. Does that make sense? The food becomes you. And so this is what the Guru is saying you have to do with this wisdom. You have to taste it, you have to experience it so that it becomes a part of you. Create a personal relationship with this Guru. Create a relationship with this wisdom. Let the wisdom enter your body. Let it sink in, let it soak into your mind. Let it become a part of you. So that you become a, a part of it and it becomes a part of you. And let the Guru become the very basis of your thinking. What we do is we form opinions in our head and then we pick and choose what other people say, whether it fits the opinions that we've already decided on. Yeah, That's how we choose our religions, that's how we decide anything in life. Any new ideas, we've already decided what we like and then we just ask everyone else what are the other options and then you just pick and choose. So your mind is the basis, your opinions are the basis on which all of your thoughts will then be placed on. It's as though you've created a vessel and that vessel is me, my, my opinion first and then I'll just put anything else in that bowl that fits with what I already know to be the truth. The Guru says that's not going to work. You can't just pick and choose what you want. You have to replace your vessel with the Guru's vessel. Let the Guru's wisdom be the very basis of your opinions on the world. How you should think should not be based on your opinions of the world because your opinions of the world are based on your misguided self-identity. Your ego the very fact that you think I exist and somebody else exists as separate from me, that's the very basis of, of how we think. And everything that we think is then sprouting from that misconception that I am, I exist. The Guru says, let's start again. Think about this game like Jenga where you're building a big tower with lots and lots of delicate pieces and you say, don't touch it. Don't move anything. You can maybe take the one from the top, but don't move everything else because the entire thing is going to collapse. And that's what we do with our thoughts and opinions. The Guru says, but the very basis on which you've built this tower, 
needs to be changed. You have to be willing to say, right, I forget everything, let's start again. When you start again, you start with the Guru's wisdom. The Guru's wisdom starts with Ikkwankar. First understand what that means. Don't build the rest of your tower until you've understood what Ik means. Until you know what non-duality is, until you know what I and you really mean, then all your opinions are going to be false. All your opinions are going to be based on a, a false idea. So first, let that be the wisdom that is the very basis of your thinking. So this is how you start to kill your mind's desires. This is how you start to begin to understand what the Guru has to show you. Because remember what the Guru's job is. The Guru's job is to show you God. You can't just stick to your own thoughts and your own ideas and then just keep antagonizing the Guru and saying, come on then, show me God. I don't have any time to change. You just show me what you have to show me. If I like it, I'll take it. If I don't like it, I won't take it. The Guru says it's not that simple. What I have to show you requires you to change. If you're willing to change, then I can show you it. It's there. There's a there's 100% guarantee that you'll see it. But you have to be willing to change. Because what the Guru is showing you isn't something external to you. What the Guru is showing you is inside you. If you want to see God, you're not going to see God out there somewhere. You're going to see God in here. You're going to know what God is by the very experience within yourself. How's that going to happen? The Guru has to change the very dirt that's inside there, the very thing that's clouding your judgment and clouding your way of seeing. The Guru has to clear that. So you must allow this wisdom to embed so deeply within you that it begins to fundamentally change who you are. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is this the relationship that we have with our Guru? Have we created this relationship with our Guru? Have we created a practice that allows us to consume what the Guru is saying to us on a daily basis? Can we progress if all we're doing is just quickly reading our Nitanim, very quickly just listening to Kirtan restlessly, just getting annoyed at any katha that doesn't really make any sense and then we walk away and we say, oh, this Sikhi stuff doesn't work. Is this the relationship that we've created? Do we think that this is enough? So what can you do to actually progress your relationship with this Guru so that you can actually bring the message to life? What can you do? Think about how you learn any subject. Think about being a student again. How do you learn a subject? First you go and you buy the textbook. And then you start reading the textbook. Then you might be highlighting the key points. Then you might go to some lectures to listen and learn how to interpret that information that you've read. Then you start to memorize those key points. So we go through quite a few different steps in order to learn a subject. We take notes, we write our own understanding down, we read around the subject. And all of this the student does to pass the exam. Because the exam isn't just going to ask you to regurgitate what you've memorized. The exam's going to 
question your understanding. The test is going to ask you in a way that makes the examiner know that you've really understood this subject. So, Gurbani we have to learn in the same way. It's no use just being able to quote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines. That's of no use. If you haven't understood, if you haven't allowed that change to happen within you, then all you've done is memorize the book. You've taken the textbook of any subject and you've simply just memorized it, but you haven't understood any of it. So when somebody asks you a slightly different question that's not in the book, the only answer that you give is just a quote from the book because it seems to be related to the question. You need to be able to answer the question from your experience, from your ingrained understanding of the Guru, so that you can apply the Guru's message in any scenario. So that when you go out in the real world and you have to deal with real world issues, you're dealing with it from the wisdom that the Guru has given you. Because there in the real world, your quotes aren't going to help. There your understanding, your wisdom is going to help. And that's the Guru's will, wisdom right at the base of who you are. And what is the test of, of this student? Life is your test. Every day is your test. Not the test where the Guru is saying, have you done all the things that I've told you to do? That's not the test. It's not have you followed all the rules. It's about are you able to deal with life in the way that the Guru has helped you to deal with life? Are you able to engage with people and control the thoughts in your mind? Are you able to engage with your emotions? Are you able to be authentic within yourself and not just put a pretend face in front of everyone else. This is the test that the Guru has for you. And every day is a test. Every day is a challenge. Do you exist in your self-identity all the time? Does the person walking around dealing with the whole world believe that it is me, I? If you think I am doing anything... <coughs> then the Guru's wisdom hasn't yet sunk in within you. If the Guru's wisdom has sunk in within you, then the I inside you disappears. That's your test. That's how you test yourself every day. Am I walking around in this self-identity? Or can you experience the silent presence of oneness inside you and all around you? Can you feel that? Can you remember it? Can you be conscious of it? It's there. That's how you know whether this Gurbani is working or not. Pugat Gyana. Consume the wisdom. Guruji goes on. Daya Pandaran. In yogic circles, yoga clans, yoga centers, where the great yoga masters used to congregate. The yogic masters have completely abandoned their connection with the world. So they don't cook for themselves, they don't earn any money, they don't do anything related to the world. <coughs> their only interest is in spiritual progression, in spiritual discussions, in spiritual practice. 
So the yogis would have usually a lady to cook for them so that they could have their meals. And the word that they used was pandaran, this cook. Guru Nanak Dev Ji has even a Shabad in Guru Granth Sahib Ji which refers to a woman by the word pand. So here we're seeing a similar word, pandaran. So pandaran is the cook, the one who cooks for you, the one who gives you all your meals. So Guru's carrying on with this meal analogy. Pogat gayan, consume the wisdom. Daya pandaran, and let compassion be the one that is serving you. Let compassion be your cook. Let compassion be that which looks after you. Spiritual wisdom can be really dangerous. It's a really dangerous thing if it's not combined with compassion. If it's not combined with love. It's very easy for knowledge to become your ego. Too easy. And with that, a sense of superiority arises within you. The feeling that I actually know something now. I've read all the books. I've learned all the texts. I've got a lot of knowledge. And within your own self-identity, you start feeling, I'm better than the people who don't know this knowledge. So when you start feeling higher than someone else, that should be big warning signs, red flashing lights. A siren should go off inside you that says, this has gone wrong somewhere. So where ego puts you higher than everyone else, compassion puts you lower than everyone else. If the knowledge is truly embedded within you, if you've really understood what the Guru is saying, then you will see your self-identity as a corruption of your true self. You will see this idea that me, I am, is a corrupt version of you. That isn't the real version of you. That's a corruption of you. That's where something has gone wrong. A virus has entered into you. You're not working in your most op optimal way. And if you're beginning to understand that I is something wrong, is a corrupt version, then you'll start to begin to see that there is actually the true version of me is, is a divine version. That divinity is what is within me. The oneness is what is within me, not this I, not this individuality. And when you know that this oneness, this aliveness of God, of Jyot, call it light, call it Atma, when you see that that is your true self and that is what is all around you, that's where the compassion comes from. So you see everything else as well as yourself as a manifestation of the divine. So this compassion is not a false humility that we just show the world. That's the humility that we see in the Gurdwara. 
Everyone has learned how to behave in the Gurdwara. When you go into the temple, into the mosque, into the church, all of a sudden everyone starts becoming very holy, very humble. Everyone's hands start going together. Everyone's voice softens. But this isn't a real version of ourselves because as soon as we leave the Gurdwara, then we can relax again. We become our normal selves. So this is a trained response. We've learned how to behave because we think that that is the way that people will see us best. That is a preservation of the ego. The ego says, in the Gurdwara you behave like this, then you'll be seen as one of the holy people. So the ego puts on an act. You should be able to tell whether that is real or not by the, your behavior when you leave the Gurdwara. Does that behavior continue? Or do you then just go back out into your real ego? So this is a performance, this is an act. So this is a false mask that you're wearing. And everyone puts this mask on when we go to the Gurdwara. And when we leave, we can take that mask off. So real humility is a genuine shame that you have about the very self that you experience. Your very self-identity is a shame and you say, I'm so sorry that I think that I am. That is humility. When you know that the very thing that you experience about yourself is that corrupt version and that's all you know about yourself. This is all I am. This is all I know. That's where real humility comes from. And compassion comes from out of this humility. So from humility comes compassion and from humility comes egolessness. From compassion, we start with humility. You have to know that I am low. And that's only when you can see compassion in everyone else. But you can only know that I am low when you've known that there is a problem. This ego is a problem. So you have to know that there is the opposite of the ego, which is egolessness. Compassion comes from humility. Humility comes from egolessness. Guru says, Daya Pandaran. Let this compassion be what serves you. Let that compassion be the thing that is looking after you. Let that utter humility be something that is there, part of you all the time. In order to make this food work for you, the food, the gyan, the wisdom of the Guru, in order for that to be of any effect, it needs to be served by compassion. We need compassion and humility to make sense of the wisdom. Without compassion, the food starts to go rotten. The wisdom enters in our mind, but it starts to spoil because the wisdom then feeds the ego. So that wisdom which was meant to destroy your ego starts to serve your ego. It's as though you've eaten something rotten.
There's nothing rotten in the gyan, but once it enters inside you, it starts to spoil. So you need that counterbalance with compassion, that humility, in order for the gyan to continue to work. And without this gyan, without this egoless state, gyan only turns into more ego. This egolessness that I am worthless, I am nothing, without that, the gyan says, I am something. Daya pandaran kat kat vajhe nad. In each and every heart resounds the sound. Now the Pandaran who used to cook for the yogis, when the food has been prepared and is ready to serve, she would play an instrument, ring a bell, call everyone so that they know that food is about to be served. Guru says, I have one of these instruments as well. I have this music as well. But the music that I hear is the vibration in each and every being. I can hear that vibration. That's the music that I'm listening to. Kat kat vajhe nad. Within each and every being, within each and every heart, there is a melody and I can hear it. I can hear the vibration of your aliveness. That divine aliveness that's inside all of you, that sound of vibration, I can hear it. That is what the Gursik can hear. So remember that the sound is being played so that the yogis know to come and eat the food. And Guru is saying that in order for you to eat the food of the Guru's wisdom, you have to know that there is a sound and that there is a oneness that's in all of us. Ikwankar. You have to know what the Ikwankar is. You have to focus on that nad, on that vibration. The very first lesson of the Guru, you have to be able to see it, hear it, contemplate it, comprehend it, understand it, in order for the food of the, the gyan to continue to work. You know, everyone says that God is inside us. Everyone talks about it, like they know. But nobody knows how to find the God inside us. If God is inside you, you should be able to know where it is. If you don't know where it is, then don't say it's inside you, because you don't know. What you're saying is what you've heard everyone else say. God isn't something that's separate and inside you. It isn't a being that's playing hide-and-seek with you. Like you're somewhere and it's somewhere else just hiding from you all the time. God isn't hiding. You just don't know where to look. You don't know what you're looking for, so you don't know how to find it. Guru Nanak Dev Ji says that I can hear God in everything and everyone. When you speak, it is God's voice speaking. Every sound that you make, the very sound of you being alive, the sound of you breathing, the sound of you moving, the voice coming out of your mouth, that is God's voice. Guru Nanak says, I can hear it because I know what I'm listening for. I'm not trying to find something that's hidden far away. I can see it and hear it right in front of me. It's here. I can see it. But only because I've been taught by the Guru what I'm looking for. 
So your voice, your breath, your movement, your sound is God's sound. It isn't something that's far away. Your voice is God's voice. Otherwise, whose voice do you think it is? My voice. The I comes back in. You say, oh, I didn't think that was God's voice. I thought that was my voice. Your aliveness is God's aliveness. The very thing that makes you alive right now, that's His aliveness. Sab jot jot hai soi, tis de chanan sab chanan hoi. Within you is the light, within all is the light, and that light is His light. When He is shining, you are shining. Because He is switched on, you are switched on. And we don't know what to look for. When Guru is saying, it's staring you in the face. Look in the mirror. What you see is God. What you feel inside you is God. Do this. Close your eyes for a moment. Who's there? Can you feel someone or something there? That which you feel, the presence that you feel inside you right now, that's God. And all this time you thought it was somewhere far away. That's it. When you close your eyes, it's like walking into a room. There's someone in the room, right? There's something there. When you close your eyes, that I is there. That I isn't you. The thing that's switched on inside you right now, that's God. Where did you think it was hiding? Where have you been looking? Guru Nanak says, Kat kat vajay nad. This vibration of aliveness is in all of us. So being aware of this presence inside you right now is to be able to hear the nad. This is the characteristic of the spiritual seeker the one that can experience the presence of the Divine at any moment. Let's think about Mool Mantar. Guru says there is oneness and the oneness spoke the sound of Oankar. And from Oankar he sent out a vibration and that Nad created everything. The very thing that keeps you alive is the voice of God. Every single cell in your body, every single atom is vibrating a frequency. That vibration, that aliveness is what? That aliveness is you. But you've always just misdirected it as me. This is where meditation comes in. We spend our whole life meditating on me, me, me. And Guru says, meditate you, you, you. When you meditate on you, you realize that the me is you. And it is that simple. But we've made it so complicated that we think God must be far away. God must be difficult to obtain. Why would the Guru give you something difficult? But it's easy to understand and comprehend it's difficult to experience all the time. This is where we constantly have to eat the food of the Guru's wisdom.
We have to continuously do this, have this relationship with it, so we never forget. Otherwise, we constantly forget, because the me is something we've lived with for so long, the me comes back at every moment. So Guru Nanak Dev Ji is now asked a question. If this is the correct interpretation of spirituality, if this is where the truth is, if this is what everyone should follow, if from the voice of Omkar all of creation has been created and we're a part of that, then what is the use of following a yogic technique? Why should we follow a yoga master? Most yogis believe that the height of yoga is when you get this spiritual powers, riddhya, siddhya, like this is how we, we judge whether we're getting anywhere and progressing anywhere in our spirituality. What's the point of, of what we're doing then? Guru Nanak Dev Ji responds, Aap nath nathi sab jaki rid sid avra sad. Nath means the head of the yogic clan. If there is a tribe of spiritual seekers within a yogic tradition, the master of that is called the Nath, and all the students are called the Nathis. So Guru says that this oneness is the master. This oneness is the yogic master, and everything is its follower. Everything is its student. Aapanath, Nati, Sabajaki, everything is your follower, is your divine student. Rid Sid Avara Sad. Riddhya and Siddhya are these spiritual powers. Guru says these are meaningless. They're just secondary pleasures, other tastes. They're not the real thing that we're after. These things are just secondary things. So Guruji is using this teacher-student analogy that we've already started to work with. What does a teacher do? A teacher gives you an instruction and the students follow that instruction. So Guru is saying that this oneness works in the same way. The oneness commands and everything has to follow. When the oneness says that this is what is going to happen, that is that hukam, that is that command, the instruction, the whole world has to do whatever it has to do in order to follow that instruction. So everything is under that, that master's command. You are the master and everyone is your student, everyone is your follower. Everything follows the hukam, that divine command. So what should you hold on to? What do you have left to hold on to? If you don't see yourself in control, then what do you have left? Are there any spiritual powers that we can gain? Through meditation, people have claimed a lot of spiritual powers. People have said that they've begun to have a heightened sense of awareness. Some people say that they're able to feel energies in inanimate objects. They're able to feel energies of other people. Some people have said that the saints are able to look at the past and the future. That they're able to gain so much spiritual wisdom that they can see beyond time and space. Guru says, none of these things should be things that you strive for. 
Don't run after these things. Don't aim for these things. If you feel that you've gained any spiritual powers, then the ego can come in and says, I now know how to do this. And as soon as the ego comes in, you've lost it. You've lost everything. You start again. So holding on to your spiritual progression is holding on to a part of your ego. And this is what we like to do. We like to have something to hold on to. There has to be a little tiny bit of me that says, yeah, but I'm still here. I'm still okay. I'm still allowed to exist. Guru says that all benefits should be given to the oneness. If there's any spiritual powers or any gains that you've gained from your meditation, the gains belong to the one, not to you. Because if they belong to you, the I is still there. All the benefits come from the one and all the benefits belong to the one. Nothing is mine. Nothing is yours. So anything that you get, these are avra. Avra means something else, other. Avra sad. Sad means swad. So remember Guruji talked about consuming the food? Guru says consume the food, that's the real swad. Everything else is avra sad. Secondary pleasures, not comparable to the primary pleasure, the Maharasamita, that supreme, tasty, divine essence. Everything else is secondary, incomparable to that primary wisdom. Apanath Nathi Sabjaki Ridsid Avrasad Sanjog Vijog Dwekar Chalavhe Lekhe Ave Pag. Sanjog means union, Vijog means separation. Sanjog, Vijog, Doikar Chalavehe. Both of these control everything, Lekhe Ave Pag, and by destiny we receive our dues. So, as well as having someone to cook for them, the yogis also had somebody else who would go to the shops and buy everything for them. Remember, the yogis didn't want to do anything to do with worldly matters. So one person was just constantly cooking, and then another person would go and buy their rations and do everything for them. So they had two caretakers. Guru Nanak Dev Ji uses the analogy of the two caretakers because these two caretakers would resolve all the affairs of the yogis. The yogis didn't have to do anything. These two would do everything for them they would resolve all the affairs. Guru Nanak Dev Ji says, I have something that resolves all my affairs. Sanjog and Vijog. The <coughs> destiny to receive and the destiny to take away. That's what controls my life. Sanjog, Vijog, doi kar chalave. Kar chalave means to resolve all my affairs, to do everything for me. What is it that's controlling your life? Guru says, what's controlling your life is destiny. Sometimes destiny gives you things, sometimes destiny takes things away from you. You're not controlling your life. You just surrender to destiny. So Sanjog is the def destiny to receive. Vijog is the destiny to have things taken away. We can call it the destiny of separation or departure. So only this divine has the power to control your life. 
It has the power to provide you with anything and to take everything away from you. Hukam is what controls what I receive and hukam is what controls what is taken away from me. This is the ultimate test of the student. Can you live completely accepting everything that is given to you and be impartial to everything that is given and everything that is taken away from you? Can you accept that? So the way to do this is not to celebrate everything that you receive in life and not to cry over everything that's taken away from your life. And this is not how we live. We see happiness as receiving things and sadness as having things taken away from us. This is how we understand life because we understand the center of our universe to be I, me. So if something gets added to me, that's good. And if something gets taken away from me, that's bad. When the very center of your thinking isn't I anymore, when the very center of your thinking is you, the universe's control, the universe is in charge, then what the universe does with the universe is completely irrelevant because there's no I to receive and there's no I to have things taken away from. This is the ultimate test of the student. That's why Aapanath Nati Sabjaki. You are the master and we are your students. We are your followers. We are willing to be tested by you in this way. So how do we live like this? There's a way to look at life using the analogy that Guruji has already started, which is around music and melody and nad. See your life as an empty instrument, like a flute being played by the universe. See your body, your mind and everything about you as simply an empty instrument that the universe can play and do whatever it wants. Your life is a melody. On your own, your melody is perfect, is beautiful. You don't need anything in your life. The universe can play a perfectly beautiful piece of music through you as an instrument. If the time is right and the universe feels that this instrument could do with another instrument, then another instrument enters your life, another person enters your life. And together you make a new melody, together you make a new sound. And when the time is right, the two instruments will separate again. And again, you know how to be perfectly fine as an instrument on your own. Your sound, your song, your voice is not dependent on other instruments. All musical instruments can be beautiful in their own right. So be like a flute, ready to be played at any time. And be content with being a solo instrument. Whatever gets added to that melody is fine. Whatever gets taken away from that melody is fine. But on your own, that nad, that vibration, that music, that song continues. So see life as something where nothing ever is gained and nothing is ever lost. It's simply just 
adding to the melody or taking away from the melody. But the song always continues. Don't see life as something that is for you to gain as much as possible, hold on to as much as possible, and to lose as little as possible. That's how we treat life. So what are we talking about here? We've used the brick analogy before. Remember the analogy of you creating your self-identity like a mansion? Now we're talking about the entire street that you live on. Your mansion is surrounded by all the mansions of all the other family members and close friends all around you. It's, you've created a nice little village for yourself. And each person has their own brick mansion. Each person in that village, each house in that village, has their own self-identity and their ego bricks that they've added and built their entire mansion with. And each person on the street believes that their house is the center of the street. Everyone sees the world from their perspective. Everyone thinks they're the center of the universe. When we look at our families, we say, this is my husband, this is my wife, this is my mother, my father, my children. We see ourselves and the whole universe in relation to us. And every single person in that family, every single one of your friends is doing the same thing. They're seeing the entire universe as them being the center of that universe. Their house is the most important house on the street. From their house can they understand what the other houses are doing from the perspective of knowing their own house. But every single one of those houses is separate. Every single one of those houses may be close together, but they're all detached houses. No one is joined to somebody else. What we've done is we've built temporary bridges between every house. This is my mother, my father, my husband, my wife, my friend, my enemy. You have bridges with your enemies. You keep them a little bit far away, but there's a bridge between you and them. The bridge that says, I don't want to join them. The bridge that says, I don't want to go in that direction. So the reality is we're not really connected to anyone or anything. We're not connected in any way. And with this wisdom, that's how you begin to realize that you're actually disconnected from everything. Even the ones closest to you, nearest and dearest to you, to you, you have no connection with them. You didn't enter the world with them and you're not going to leave the world with them. Nobody is connected to you. Now you might think this actually leads to a very lonely existence. This is a very solitary way of living. Like you're lacking any sort of real intimacy in life. Any deep, personal, meaningful relationships. How do you build relationships when you don't build that connection? But the opposite is actually true. When you know that everything is impermanent, when you know that nothing will last, when you know at any moment the connection between you and something else, that temporary bridge can be broken, then every moment counts. Every moment you have with that other person is something that is deeply meaningful, something that you cherish. 
this isn't a morbid or a lonely way of living. This is a very fulfilling way of living. You live, you laugh, you cry, you scream, you shout, all in the present moment. So constantly remembering this impermanent nature of the universe, constantly being detached from everything, you can be surrounded by all the people that you know and love and still be alone. Still be in your own solitude. Still be aware of the One. So being alone, being detached, isn't the same as being lonely. We're not talking about loneliness. In fact, when you're in a crowd full of people, you will realize that your connection with them isn't real. That no matter how much fun you have with someone else, where they are and where you are can never merge. The experience of them and you can never become one. In fact, you are more lonely when you're in a crowd full of people thinking that all these people are going to be somehow able to fulfill a void within me. That's loneliness. Being a follower of the Guru's wisdom, you actually know that there is something that I'm connected to. There is a real connection within me. And that's the connection that never leaves you. The connection between you and the One. That presence, that feeling of being present and with that oneness that's within you. So people can come and go all the time. Within your life, lots of changes are going to happen. But that oneness is never going to leave you. This is the path of enlightenment. This is the path of the Gursik. And Guru ends by saying, Ades thisair ades. To this I bow. I bow to this I bow. At this point, what else can Guru do? You can only surrender. You can only bow down in utter humility at the glorious greatness of this oneness, as at the greatness of this wisdom. You can be in reverence, in awe of this master that you can see. This master who is Ad, Anil, Anad, Anahat, the first, the pure, beyond beginning and unending, Jug Jug Ekovis, only one form throughout the ages. So I think we'll leave it for there. Waigruji ka khalsa, Waigruji ki fateh.